Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Please welcome back Dr. Ben Reinhardt. Well, it's, it's good to be back. And uh, it's good to, be ha to have a second night to talk about the dream of the root. Now, here's what I'm going to do. Because last week was a long time ago, and because last week had miserable weather, even worse than this week, and some of you I don't think were here, I'm going to spend just a few minutes recapping what we went over last week, and then we'll jump right into the poem. All right? So, we're dealing with the dream of the root, which, as you remember, is a very, very old poem, right? It's about... It's about 1,300 years old, dating to around the year 700 A.D. And because it's so old, we spent a little time just understanding the cultural background of the dream of the root so we could appreciate what the poet's trying to do. And the word that kept coming up when we talked about that old Anglo-Saxon culture was hard, right? It's a hard, sort of grim world. Does anyone remember the main building block of that society? The big relationship that we care about? Ah, review is good for you. Yeah. Yeah, the, the warrior and his lord. The, the warrior and the general, general, right? This is the relationship that it doesn't just compete with the family bond. It actually supersedes the family bond. The love, between, the love and the reciprocity between the warrior and his lord, that's what this society is built on. Okay? That was the first thing that we established. And this culture was a pretty hard culture to convert, yeah? But one of the ways that conversion and Christianization became successful were through efforts of men like the poet St. Cadman. And Cadman's great, well, it's hard to call it his accomplishment, since St. Bede says that it was actually a divine gift. But what Cadman did is he took the old model of the heroic poetry, right? the heroic poetry that would praise the great lords and the great warriors and things like this. And he applied the language, he applied the terminology, and he applied the poetic forms instead of praising the old religion or the old heroes to praising Christ. And that's what Cadman did. So we use the building blocks of the society that we have to further the cause of Christ. And the dream of the rood is an extension of that. Right? Um, and we'll talk about that as we go on tonight. Last big thing we did last time is we looked at the very introduction to the dream of the root. And it's a pretty odd introduction, right? We've got, our we've got our dreamer. He's lying awake all alone in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden he sees this cosmic cross, right? He sees this beautiful jeweled golden cross spanning all the heavens. And as he's staring there in wonder, it changes in appearance. 
And where first it was glorious and, and golden, now it's bloody. And then it's glorious, then it's bloody. And he becomes terrified. And he's terrified because he knows that at the end of the world, the cross of Christ will come back, right? They will see the sign of man coming in the, coming in the sky. That's what St. Matthew's Gospel tells us. But there's also the tradition that at Judgment Day, when you're judged, what you see determines where you go or indicates where you go. If, you've been, if you're in a state of grace, you'll see Christ all whole and healthy. But if you're a sinner, you're going to see the wounds you caused. Right? So, he sees this cross. It's both glorious and bloody. Glorious and bloody. And because he can't figure out what the cross is, well, he's terrified for the state of his own soul. Right? Because that's a pretty important thing to be clear on. Where, where you're going to go, ultimately. And that's where we left off last time. Before we go any farther, though, I'd like to take a step back. One of the first things I ask you to do is to really read slowly. We need to read poetry slowly. It's one of the big differences in prose. In Anglo-Saxon poetry, and the Dream of the Rood in particular, need to be read slowly because they're written as an aid to meditation and reflection. So I ask you to read slowly and to try to picture what the poet's talking about. With your indulgence, we're going to do this together. So, if we start around line 16. The cross was adorned with gold, and gems have, had covered in reverence the ruler's tree. By the way, as I read, just try to picture what he's talking about. Make a mental picture. And yet through the gold I began to see this old strife of foes. It first began to bleed on the right side. I was battered by sorrow, afraid at that fair sight. I saw that fearless standard change color and complexion. Now it was soaked in, with blood, drenched with flowing blood, now bedecked with treasures. Yet I, lying there a long while, beheld in sorrow the Savior's tree. Okay. So, you've pictured it now. What exactly does the cross look like? If you were going to draw it, what would you draw? Right now. Right now. Right now. What are you going to draw? Okay, but 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 what about the gold? Well, now it was soaked with blood, drenched with blood, now bedecked with treasures. And this is where it gets really, really hard. You think you know what it means until you actually try to picture it, right? Um, my old advisor at Notre Dame, a guy named Tom Hall, he called these lines numbingly obscure, right? Because if you're actually going to take them literally, and I'm just going to quote uh, Dr. Hall for a second. If you take it literally and in sequence, quoting Dr. Hall, it appears that the dreamer first sees a single cross, then he sees a second cross through the first, then he sees one cross change its outward appearance until it becomes the other. Then he sees two crosses alternate in a seemingly recurrent pattern that shifts back and forth from one image to the next, while holding both in view at once, so that even the number of crosses becomes problematic. Is he seeing one or two? That's if you read it literally line by line. And I think that's a pretty good suggestion to not read it literally line by line. I think the difficulty with the language here is comes from the fact that the poet is trying to describe something that can't ultimately be described in words. He's describing something that's ultimately ineffable, right? The cross is both glorious and bloody, 
but it's hard to keep both of those things in mind at the same time. I've brought a concrete <laughs> illustration of what I mean. I mean that. Okay? So, is this here, is it a vase or is it two faces? It's both. But you can't focus on both at once, right? Because if you're focusing right here, it's a vase, right? And the faces disappear. But if you focus on the faces, you don't see the vase, right? So it's, one of the, so it's something that you, it's like this illusion where you can't see, uh, oh, we're going to go back for a second. Okay, good eye. There we go. So it's something that is both and, but you can't properly focus on both things at once, right? The cross is simultaneously bloody and glorious without confusing the blood and the glory, right? Without, without diminishing either the blood or the glory. Pay attention. The poet worked very, very hard to confuse you that much, right? He, he works hard to show us that we're entering into a world in this dream that things aren't always exactly what they appear to be. Things aren't always going to work exactly the way you think they're going to work. But in any case, he has this vision of the cross that is somehow at the same time bloody and glorious, right? And he's lying there in sorrow, prostrate before it for a very long time, he tells us. And we're in this moment, uh, uh, it's stasis. It's like a stalemate. The stalemate's finally broken. How? Did you catch it? By the way, this is very, very exciting because you've all read the poem now, so you can, I can ask you questions and get good answers. How do we break the stalemate? The cross speaks. And if it wasn't weird enough to have this giant cross filling all the sky, bloody and glorious, now the cross is going to talk to us. And he's going to tell us what's essentially his life story, right? He's going to tell us how he came to be the cross that he is. And the bulk of this story is the passion narrative, right? So, your other really big homework assignment was to read the Passion story in here, go back to your Bibles and see what the Bible says about the Passion, and see what's similar and see what's different. So, I'll take responses. What's similar here? What, where are the stories the same? The blood and the gore on the cross. All right, yeah, so... As far as similarities go, yep, we get the gore, we get the blood, sure. Anything else? Okay, we got the nails. All right, what else? Okay, yeah, you got the mocking of Christ on the cross. All right, so we've got the basic elements there. We've got, we've got Christ on the cross, nails, blood, mockery. Now here comes the fun part. Where are the stories different? More voluntary. How do you mean? Yes, right? In this poem, Christ comes running up the hill. He strips himself. He climbs on the cross all himself. Yeah, where else is it different? What's that? Okay, yeah. Uh, so yeah, the cross itself becomes a participant. The cross itself becomes an actor. Anything else? The weather's trembling. Yeah. So uh, we, we play up the weather, trembling, weeping, things like that. Not entirely unlike tonight. Yes, 
Absolutely so. Anything else? Well, the tree starts talking from when it was first cut down and, and separated from its roots. Uh-huh. Okay, so we get, we get the backstory on the cross, right? All right. Any other differences that you see? Yeah. Yeah, that is very, very odd. Uh, the cross's perspective. All right. Any other differences? If not, we'll, we'll push on. Did you notice what he does with the disciples? With Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus? What is he? What? Fearless men. Battle warriors. Now, if I were to just take two words... <laughs> To describe the disciples as they exist in the New Testament, fearless and warrior would not be either of those words, right? St. Peter is a warrior for all of 10 seconds when he chops off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And after that, they're like sheep without a shepherd, right? So our poet's doing something very, very funny and very, very deliberate here. And I'm going to try to play out a couple of the things that he's doing. The first thing, the big thing that you notice that jumps out at you right away as the cross is telling this is that Christ is made much, much more active. Go to line 33, right? The, the cross is already established on the hill. Christ doesn't have to carry the cross. I saw the friend of mankind. The, the literal Old English is Freya Mancunis. That old Freya, the, the, the Lord, the, but the friendly Lord of mankind. Hasten with great courage, when he wanted to climb up on me. Okay? And then you go down a little bit more. He strips himself. He climbs up on the gallows. He embraces the cross all of his own accord. It's pretty clear what we've done here with Christ. We've made him into the hero. We've made him into this great warrior, this great lord. We've made him a hero like Beowulf or, or uh, like Walder or any of these old Germanic heroes. Okay? So Christ has become this really strong, active hero, not so much the suffering servant as he's depicted here. But that extends, right? That extends to the cross. Because the cross is active. The cross wants to serve his Lord by avenging himself on, on the Lord's enemies, right? He wants to kill all the people who are crucified in Christ, but Christ tells him to stand fast. So the cross is himself a servant of this great Lord. The disciples become more of his, his retainers, more of his loyal military servants. What the poet's done, he, he's taken a page from Cadman's playbook, right? He's reimagined the passion of the Christ in terms that people in his culture would recognize. He says, oh, you like your stories about heroes. Well, this is a hero for you here. This is a, this is a real heroic endeavor. Does that make sense? All right. That's the first thing that's going on in the Dream of the Root, and it's one of the most important. But we can't let it be the only thing. Um, if you make it the only thing, you run the risk of mis, uh, misinterpreting and skewing the evidence pretty badly. I've sat in classes where professors say things like, well, you see, the Anglo-Saxons, they didn't really like Jesus. 
They didn't like Jesus because they liked the God of the Old Testament as though that's something different. They liked the God of the Old Testament who helps you win battles and who defeats your enemies and who gets revenge. They didn't really understand Jesus. And, well, that, that's nonsense, to, to be quite honest. Uh, this is an incredibly theologically sensitive poem. It jumps out at you. Look at line 39. The young hero stripped himself. He was the Almighty God. Or go, go down to, uh, let's see here, line 51. The God of hosts I saw savagely stretched out. What this is, it, it's, he's making use of the principle of the communicatio idiomatum, the communication of idioms. It's the theological principle that says that you can predicate of the second person of the Blessed Trinity everything that Christ experienced in his humanity. Now, that's, that's a roundabout way to say it, but what it means is God in his own nature can't suffer. We know this, right? God in his nature is eternal. God in his nature can't die. But God took on human nature, and Christ, it's not that Christ's human nature died. No, Christ died, so it's perfectly appropriate to say that the second person of the Blessed Trinity, God, died. Now, a poet who's sensitive to that who's sensitive to the idea that this is, in fact, God on the cross, is not somebody who's just sort of, you know, this barbarian walking around, not being able to figure out how Christ could suffer, how, how you could worship somebody who suffers. Does that make sense? There's a real theological depth here. Um, you can pull out more of the theological depth if you guys look at the cross. And I'm very, very glad you highlighted the cross. Because where Christ is active, right? Christ is active, he's strong, he does everything of his own will. What does the cross do? He stands, yeah? Good, he stands, he obeys, yeah? What else does the cross do? He doesn't bend. But you get the sense that he'd really kind of like to, right? He'd like to bend, he'd like to break, he'd like to just not be there. The cross also suffers, right? Uh, go down to line 56. We don't talk so much about Christ's suffering, but we talk an awful lot about the cross's suffering. They drove me through with dark nails. The damage is still visible, the gaping wounds of hate. Of hate. Now, I don't want to put, push this too far, but I think here's what the poet's trying to do. The doctrine of the Incarnation is a weird one. We accept it, but it's hard. It's a mystery, right? That you can have one person with two natures, that you could have God suffer and die. We can talk all you want about communicatio idiomatum, and still that doesn't make a whole lot of sense just when you approach it. How, do you, how can you get your mind around God dying? What our poet's done here is he sort of split it. He split the perspective, and he's looking at the crucifixion both from the perspective of Christ's divinity and the perspective of Christ's humanity. Christ the young hero, Christ who wills to climb the cross, this helps you understand what it was in Christ's divinity when he suffered and died. Right? Because he is, was, remains, always will be the God of all creation. He says, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord. It was, obviously, of his own free will. From the, from the divine perspective, what the cross describes Christ doing is perfectly accurate. But that's not the only thing that happened on Calvary. Because Christ also suffered and died. And it's not quite right to say that the cross 
is Christ's human nature. No, the cross is the cross, right? The cross is the cross. But it points to, it symbolizes what Christ went through in his humanity, right? The fear, the terror, the having to stand and take it, the suffering, all of that is, uh, is brought out in what the cross does and suffers. And so we're given a picture of Christ, God and man, true God and true man, simultaneously the triumphant hero and the suffering bloody servant. And oh my goodness, wait a minute. That's exactly what the cross was just 20 lines ago, right? Simultaneously bloody and glorious. I told you, the poet, he, he wants you to be thinking about these things. So he's examining how God can die. That's the, the second really important thing here in these lines. The first important thing is adapting it for his audience so that they can see what true heroism is. The second thing is exploring these really deep theological truths. The third reason why the cross's speech is important is just because it's beautiful. Um, it's beautiful, it's emotionally rich, the pathos is really, really high, and because I am, huh, because I'm a dork, I'm going I'm to read these off because it's just so beautiful. Starting at line 44. I was raised the cross, and the great king I bore, the Lord of heaven. To bow I dared not, they drove me through with dark nails, the damage is still visible, the gaping wounds of hate, I dared not harm a one of them, and they mocked us both together. Blood soaked me through, poured from the man's side after he sent forth his spirit. Many hateful fates have I endured on that hill, the God of hosts I saw savagely stretched out. Then shadows had covered in clouds the corpse of God, that shining glory. Beneath the gloom, dark shadows crept forth. All creation wept, lamenting the king's fall. Christ was on the cross. And right there you have the real emotional core of the poem. The crucifixion, Christ on the cross, all creation, as you pointed out, is wrapped up in this, right? Creation weeps because it knows that it's, it's God is falling, is, is dying, it's God is dying. The earth trembles in fear as Christ strides up to, uh, to Mount Calvary. That's a nice reinterpretation of the earthquake. The shadows come forward to hide the glory of, of Christ as he's hanging there on the cross because all the world is standing in sort of dumbstruck wonder at what just happened. Absolutely beautiful poetry. All right, so that's our emotional heart of the poem. Any questions on that before we move forward? Why? Why didn't we read it earlier? That part? Yes. No, because we didn't have time. <laughs> we did. I should have read it earlier because there's so much to say about it that I, I'm afraid that it'd be like pulling pulling a, a piece of yarn on a sweater and just keep going and going and going. You, you did. That, that's what I worried about. All right. So let, let's push ahead. Okay. Let's push ahead. That's the emotional core of the poem, but we can't just stop there. Right? Because even though we've had sort of the emotional climax, our poet has set him a lot of problems that he has to solve. We've got to figure out what we're going to do with the dreamer. We've got to figure out how the cross is going to become glorious. So we have some really important questions and really important themes yet to explore. So he takes us down very nicely from the emotional climax, right? Uh, the cross finally can bow now that Christ is dead. The battle warriors come forward, right? We give Christ a proper heroic burial. They dig him his own grave. They stand all around him and chant a dirge and then go off in the evening. And now the cross. 
gets to experience his own death and his own burial, right? Because who needs a cross after the prisoner has been executed? So he's chopped down to the earth. He's buried in his own, in his own grave. We get one more cheerful anachronism when, if you go down to, let's see here, line 75, in a deep ditch they laid us, but the Lord's servants, his friends, found me and gilded me over. Any clue what that's a reference to? Yeah, St. Helena. St. Helena and the, the finding of the true cross, right? So she becomes another one of the thanes of the Lord, another one of Christ's warriors who comes, finds the cross, lifts it up, and exalts it. Uh, we've made it rich with gold and silver. And now we come to another thing that's actually really, really weird. It's something that we never appreciate as weird, but I want you to, to focus on it tonight. So, St. Helena finds the cross. She raises it up, she puts it up high, gold and silver everywhere, and they venerate it now. In about three weeks, you're all going to venerate the cross on Good Friday, right? Behold the wood of the cross and all that. That's weird. Because look, the cross is where God died, right? The cross is the instrument through which our maker, our Lord, our friend, was brought to torment and death. We don't venerate Pontius Pilate for washing his hands, right? We don't venerate the Roman soldiers who flogged Christ. We don't venerate the guy who nailed him to the cross. Why do we venerate the cross? We do. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not challenging the veneration of the cross right now. Okay. <laughs> we, we venerate the cross, but, but it's not the most logical thing to do, right? And if you'd never heard of it before... It, it seemed kind of odd that you're worshiping the thing where the guy you worship was killed. Yeah? So the cross didn't have a choice, right? But, so yeah, so the idea is inanimate things do what they're created to do, so the cross did what it's supposed to do. That's true. That's absolutely true. But that's not the answer that the poet's going to give. It's actually a really beautiful answer. If you go down, uh, now I stand glorious, this is at line 84, tower into the heavens, I may heal each and every one who holds me in awe. Once I was held the hardest of punishments, most loathsome to the people. Um, listen, line 90. I was honored by the Lord of glory, the guardian of heaven's kingdom, over all trees of the forest, just as he honored his mother, Mary herself. Almighty God, in the sight of all men, honored her over all the race of women. Oh, well, now that's interesting. He's going to argue by analogy. He says, look, you venerate the Blessed Virgin, don't you? Why do you venerate her? Because she bore Christ. She bore God. So she's honored above all other women. The cross, like the Blessed Virgin, bore Christ. So it's only fitting that it be honored over all the other trees of the forest. That's how you explain the veneration of the cross, and this, according to the poet, to someone who's never contemplated that before. Oh, very good. Thank you. Well, since I don't have to go faster, I'm actually going to take, I'm going to take a brief break here for a little apologetical and uh, actually autobiographical uh, digression. Because I love this argument here. This is a beautiful little argument. And I'd actually suggest if you've got Protestant friends, relations, who just can't wrap their heads around the veneration of the Blessed Virgin Mary, show them those lines. It's a good starting point to the veneration of the Blessed Virgin. I say it's a good starting point because it's where I started. In 2005, I was an undergraduate at Purdue University. I read these lines for the first time. I read them again in 2007 as I was just starting RCIA at the University of Notre Dame. Both times, I wasn't yet to the point where I understood the veneration of Mary, 
Both times, this little speech here brought me up short. And it brought me up short for two reasons. The first reason is, as sort of this vague evangelical, I really liked the idea that the veneration of the Blessed Virgin was a late thing. It's, it's not an old Christianity. It's not an ancient Christianity. It's one of those things that probably came up in 1200 or 1400, or you know, five minutes before Martin Luther came along to fix everything, right? Um, but this is an incredibly old poem, 700 AD. And it doesn't just give evidence for the veneration of the Blessed Virgin. It assumes that you venerate the Blessed Virgin. And in fact, it assumes that the veneration of Mary is prior to the veneration of the cross. And that brings us to the second really interesting point. Because as a Protestant, I had no problems venerating the cross. And no Protestant that I know of has, uh, has problems venerating the cross. Uh, look at the sign in the road as you pull out at the Baptist church next door. The power of the cross. Turn on your radio in Holy Week and you'll hear songs like, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Oh, the old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. Right? Jesus, keep me near the cross. All these things. Rightly, our Protestant brothers and sisters venerate the cross. But why do we venerate the cross? Well, we venerate the cross because it bore Christ, right? But every reason you have to venerate the cross is actually a much stronger reason for venerating the Blessed Virgin. As good as the poet's argument is here, it's a much better argument if you flip it around, right? Because you venerate the cross, which bore Christ for a few hours on a Friday afternoon. She bore Christ for nine months. And he actually took his human flesh from her. It's a much closer connection, right? You venerate the cross because it participated in this work of our redemption. But Mary actually willed to participate in the work of redemption, right? The cross, and the cross is where Christ died. The, the womb of the Blessed Virgin is where Christ came alive. There's no reason, if you venerate the cross, that you can't venerate the Blessed Virgin. Now, of course, this doesn't get you all the way there. This won't get you past, you know, this won't get you to... Uh, the dogma of the Assumption or the Immaculate Conception, but it gets you a good way, good way down the road. It got me there. So I share it with you because I think it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. The idea that the cross and the Blessed Virgin have this close, close sympathy. All right. Digression over. Now that the poet has established the fittingness of venerating the cross, he can go on and dive deeply into what that veneration is going to look like. And the cross can give to the dreamer his own great commission. Look at line 95. Now I command you, my dear man, that you say to men what you have seen, uncover with words the wondrous tree on which Almighty God endured torments for the many sins of all mankind and for Adam's ancient deeds. So our poet here is supposed to spread the news wide and far, right? Sorry, our poet. Our dreamer is supposed to spread the news wide and far. He's supposed to get men ready for doomsday because Christ will come to judge and ultimately he's going to ask who would suffer death for him as he suffered for them. And now we notice something really strange. This is, I think, maybe the strangest thing in the poem. You come to the end of, Christ, uh, of the cross's speech at line 121. How does the dreamer respond? What does he have to say? What's he like now, now that the cross has given him his mission? I prayed then to the cross with great courage and high spirits. There, was, there where I was alone with very little company, compelled on the journey was my innermost mind. What's the dreamer like now? 
He's not fearful anymore. Great courage. Eager, eager mind, right? He's, he's got high spirits. A hundred lines ago, this was a guy who was mortally wounded with his sins, fearful for his own soul, expecting, expecting, wondering if he was going to be damned. Now we've got confidence and eagerness. Um, so what's changed? Well, the easy answer is to say, he's heard the story of the cross, right? He's heard the story of the cross. He knows now that redemption is possible. He knows, as the cross says, around about line 100, that Christ suffered for mankind's sin, so he knows that there's redemption, so he has a come-to-Jesus moment. And there's a little something there. But our poet's much, much more careful than that. So, you might have noticed, this poem actually repeats itself a lot. There are lines that come up again and again and again throughout the poem. These repetitions are intentional. They're serving to set up a series of very, very important relationships. First one, we're going to identify the dreamer with the cross itself. Look at line 14. This is going to be describing the dreamer. I was stained with sin, mortally wounded with iniquities. Um, for a wounded midwomum, wounded unto death, with sins, is the original Old English. Look at line 62. The cross is standing splattered in gore, gouged, wounded to death, for wounded midstralum. The cross has been wounded to death too. Same words for the dreamer and the cross. This is repeated again, that this, uh, these parallels, at line 20. I was battered by sorrow, says the dreamer. And line 69. The cross... Sorry, 69? Is that right? 59, sorry, 59. Sorely I was battered with sorrow. So, the dreamer and the cross experience the same suffering. They're both wounded mortally. They're both battered around by their sorrows. Okay. That's the first identification. The dreamer at the beginning is identified with the cross. But, very, very, very obviously, the cross itself is identified with Christ. If you go back to that passion narrative, you see how carefully that this is drawn out. It's drawn out because the cross is representative of Christ's human nature, right? So, of course, he's quite closely united to Christ. It's representative, or the uh, relationship is established in that intensely emotional passage. They mocked us both together. We're together right? They're all soaked with blood together. The cross receives the wounds of Christ. And we see the same verbal repetitions. When Christ comes up the hill at line, uh, let's see, this is line 34, he hastens with great courage. The cross, having undergone the, uh, the passion, well, what does he do? Line 60, I bow to the man's hands humbly with great courage. So, the poet has very, very, very carefully said, the dreamer shares in the sufferings of the cross. The cross shares in the, in the sufferings and the exaltation of Christ, right? Because the cross dies with Christ and is raised with Christ. Well, then number three is really easy to fill in, right? If the dreamer corresponds to the cross and the cross corresponds to Christ, well, Fairly easily, the dreamer can now correspond to Christ 
too, because he's been identified with the cross, because he's participated in the passion, he too can become identified with Christ. Look at that opening speech again at line 123. I prayed then to the cross with great courage. That's the same courage that Christ had when he came up the hill. That's the same courage that the cross had when it bowed down to, to give Christ back to the men. And now it's the dreamer's courage. Right? If we die with Christ, we'll be raised with Christ. And, th and that's what we have here. And not only that, but all those old problems that the dreamer had, the fear, the, the loneliness, if you go back to the beginning, he's all alone, these become themselves opportunities for sanctification. They become opportunities to become conformed to Christ. He's there alone with very little company, just as Christ was, if you go back to his burial, at lines, what, 60, uh, blah, 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 blah. This is why you should write them down before, before you start talking, right? Uh, he rested there with very little company, at line 69, right? So now the dreamer has become identified with Christ, and now he can go forward in confidence because he's participated in the passion, he's become conformed to the image of, the image of Christ and the death of Christ, and now he can be saved. This sets up what is laid out very, very clearly in the cross's own speech. So if you think, I, if you think I'm stretching credulity a little bit, I could have just pointed you to the cross's speech, but, but I want... I wanted you guys to work through it first. Go back to line 117 through 121. Those who bore the best of signs in their hearts need not much fear on doomsday. But through the cross we seek the kingdom, leaving earth's paths, all souls whose hope it is to dwell in heaven with God. Through the cross we seek the kingdom, all souls who hope to, to live in heaven with God. Does that make sense? It's actually really, really beautiful. It's, it's just a, a glorious poem. Because we've gone through all this, because we've seen Christ's sufferings and the glory that are, is attendant on Christ's sufferings, we move on to the ending. We get the great triumphant conclusion. The sun was victorious on his voyage, mighty and triumphant, when he came with the multitude, with a host of souls to heaven's kingdom, the omnipotent ruler of all came to bring joy to the angels. This is a reference just before to the harrowing of hell. He's bringing the saints to heaven now. To bring joy to the angels and all the holy ones who in heaven before dwelt in glory. Then their ruler came, God Almighty, where his own home was. And we can join him in his homeland because the cross has cleared out the way for us. Now, that's the end of the main poem. Beautiful little thing. But I began my first talk last week, talking about what we ought to use poetry for. And I'd like to give a little, and by little I mean a 25-minute epilogue, on how we ought to use this poem. All right? Now, the way that this full poem here, as it exists in the Vercelli book, was probably intended to be used is the way I, I use it. When Good Friday rolls around, I revisit this thing pretty much every year. I read through it. I meditate on it. I meditate on what Christ has done. And well, what else are you going to do on Good Friday, right? I mean, it doesn't, it's an appropriate thing to do on Good Friday, to enter more deeply into the mystery of the Passion. But the way I use it isn't the only way this poem was used in the Middle Ages. And we're going to spend a little while talking about how other readers of this poem dealt with it, because it's going to give you guys, I think, a little springboard into your own reading of poetry and your own understanding of, what, of how poetry fits 
in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church. So, leaving aside our vase, first way that this poem is used in the past is in this. This is the Riddle Cross. We talked about that last time, right? This is the 17-foot-tall stone cross erected in Scotland probably around the year 730 to 760, maybe 750 AD. This thing's erected. It's knocked down by, pres by radical Presbyterians of the Scottish Kirk in the Reformation because, well, it's clearly idolatrous. It's a cross that has images on it. So it was, it was knocked down. Even before it was knocked down, it's, it's had some wear and tear. You know, if, if you're standing outside in the weather in Scotland for a thousand years, you'll look a little rough too. But we can still see what's going on in the cross. On the broad sides, we have uh, up here, we've got little vignettes from Scripture. From Scripture and from the life of the church. So up here, we have the, the visitation uh, of the Blessed Virgin. Down here, which you can't quite see, you've got the Annunciation, uh, the woman wiping Christ's hair with her feet, and Christ healing the man born blind. You've got all these like, nice little mysteries, little scenes from the life of Christ. But much more cool, in my opinion, than the broad sides are the narrow sides. So up the middle here, you've got what we, we call this a vine scroll. It's a typical Germanic, Anglo-Saxon, insular means of decoration. So you've got all the entwined vines. I'm not quite sure if you can see it, but around that, you've got scratchings on the side. These are runes. These are Anglo-Saxon runes. And what the Anglo-Saxon runes have on them is, if you go to your new handout, why looky there? It's a version of the dream of the root. And what seems pretty clear from the way the cross is constructed is you're supposed to walk around it and you're supposed to meditate on it as you walk around it. You're going to start here, okay, on, on this side, and then you actually read backwards down here. So the first inscription of the runes. Almighty God stripped himself when he wanted to ascend the gallows, courageous in the sight of all men. I dared not bow, I raised up the powerful king, the Lord of heaven, I dared not bend, men mocked us both together. This should sound all very, very familiar at this point, right? And, and indeed it does. I was soaked in blood poured from the man's side. Now there are two invitations in this little runic inscription. Obviously we've got the poem, but we've got the poem stripped down, right? We've just got that central part of it where we identify Christ as the hero. So it's inviting you to think about Christ's heroism, and the way he sacrificed himself for, for all of you. But the most important line is, I was soaked in blood poured from the man's side. Why, does, why is the piercing of Christ's side significant, the blood and water coming out? Do you know what that, you know what that is? It's the birth of the church, right? So we end there with the birth of the church. We go back to this front panel here. Yeah, this front panel. We're going to go to a close detail of it. And what do we have on the front panel? We've got scenes of the Blessed Virgin Mary, pregnant with Christ, waiting to give birth to, the, to Christ and to Christian life in general. So you start meditating on the Passion. You come and see how the Passion feeds into the life of the church and the birth of the church. 
that's a, it's actually really, really lovely. As you continue to go around on the side, to, to the next side, you get a second runic inscription. Christ was on the cross, fearless ones came from afar, noble ones to the one. I beheld all that, sorely I was battered with sorrow, I bowed to the men's hands. Wounded with arrows, they laid him down, limb weary, they lined up by the head of his corpse. They beheld there the Lord of heaven. Now Christ has died, we meditate. By the way, this is like a little precursor to the rosary, right? You see, you meditate on all these little mysteries of Christ's life and death. So you meditate on that, now Christ is dead, well, what comes next? The second half of the cross comes next. The resurrection. The Christian life lived out in time. You you have images, which I regrettably did not give to you, of things like uh, monks breaking bread together in the desert. You have images of Christ triumphant being adored by wild animals. You end, very, very fittingly, with John the Baptist pointing out the Lamb of God, who is the great victor, but also the great sacrifice. And then if you want to, you can start all over again, thinking about the sacrifice of Christ. Okay? The, the theory on this is that they, it was probably made by a monastic community, and it was used as a meditation on what monastic life is supposed to be. Because what do you do in the monastery? You stand your ground, right? You give up yourself, you sacrifice yourself, and you live in Christ. And that's what the monastery is all about. So that's one way it was used. It was used as a primer for the monastic life. Oh, there's Christ adored by the animals. I did give you something like that. All right, we're going to skip 250 years into the future now. That was made around 750. This here we call the Brussels cross. It's made around the year 11, uh, uh, sorry, around the year 1000, a little after the year 1000. And the Brussels cross has an even worse history than the Ruthel cross. It was a reliquary cross. It actually had a relic of the true cross inside of it. Originally, it would, its front, this is actually the back that you're looking at here, was all covered in gold and jewels and gems. The French Revolutionaries stole it, ripped off the front, hacked it up and sold it. Um, but we still have the back of it. Okay? Now, the great thing about the, the Brussels cross is it too has an inscription which runs, which you can't see, around the sides of it. And that inscription says, Rod is me nama yo ichrichna kuning barabithienda blodabestemid. The rude, the cross is my name. Long ago I bore the powerful king, trembling and soaked with blood. And where the, the giant monumental stone cross is used for sort of public, sort of public and communal meditation, this is used much more privately, right? Because it's, it's smaller. You can't walk your community around this, walk around it. It's meant for private prayer, and you're supposed to come to it and pray, and you're supposed to notice that right there on the right side, right where the spear went in, it says, I was all soaked in blood. Right? But it's also brought to a higher plane because it's actually a relic. It has the relic of the true cross inside it, so you've got the gems on the outside, the bloody true cross on the inside. It's, it's a literal representation of what you saw at the beginning of the poem, The Dream of the Rood. Finally, and maybe most importantly, this is also a processional cross that would be used in Mass, right? So it's brought into the celebration of the Eucharist. And right there, you can, can hardly see it. Can you see what it is if you're up front? It's the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who is slain, but triumphant. The Lamb of God who is raised before us at every Mass, right? And the Mass is, after all, the unbloody representation of Cal- Calvary. And it ties all back into those ideas. God dying 
the glory and the suffering all together. And that's what's used in the Brussels cross. Now, this should be the end of the story. This should be the closing of the book on the dream of the root. It'd be fitting, right? You've got the one giant cross used for public, public veneration. You've got the small little private cross here used for private Eucharistic prayer. It should also be the end of it because 1010, when the Brussels cross was made, is the last flourishing of Anglo-Saxon culture. It's the last flourishing of Anglo-Saxon culture because of what happens in 1066. Yeah? It's the Norman invasion. And when William the Conqueror comes in, kills King Harold, takes over England, what, what's he do? Well, he makes England, or at least the top level of England, French. He's a French king. He brings in, well, a lot of the English lords were killed to begin with. He brings in French lords to take their place. But it's not just French lord, secular lords. He ousts English abbots and puts French abbots in their place. English bishoprics he fills with French bishops. Only one English bishop actually survives the Norman conquest, okay? It survives, that is, holding onto his seat for a substantial amount of time after the Norman conquest. And because of this, high culture becomes French. The people who are going to be reading books, making books, physically copying the books, they're all French. So the language changes immediately. There's no more market for Old English. And as the language changes, the poetry changes. The old stories are lost. The old poems are lost. The dream of the rude should be completely forgotten. And this is why the last thing on your handout is so dazzlingly weird. This poem is called Isika Juan Isinga. I sigh when I sing. It's in Middle English. It's written around the year 1300. It comes down to us in a manuscript from 1340. We, we know it's older than the manuscript. I've taken the liberty of updating the spelling so you guys can follow along. Middle English is very easy if you just change the spelling to, to update it. I'm going to be reading it in Middle English because I find it easier that way. But you guys follow along. Isika Juani Singa for Sarua that Ise. When e with weipinga look upon the tray and say Jesus the sueta, his hair to blood for later, for the loaf of May. His wound is waxen weita, they weep and still and meta, that is, they, they weep continually and in good measure. Maria ruith they. Hik upon a duna upon a hill, there all folk hit say may. A mila from each tuna abutitha midai, the roda is up arared, his friends are an affair and clingeth as the clay. I highlighted that line, the road is operared, because it is almost a direct quote of line 44 in Dream of the Rood. Dream of the Rood, line 44 in the original Old English is, road ich was arared. Here we have, the road is operared. Somehow, somehow, this line has survived. It's not the case that our author, who's probably a Franciscan, is reading the Old English poem. He'd have to teach himself a whole new language to do that. It's probably not what's happened. Probably the lines from the Old English poem have so thoroughly permeated culture that they just pop up when you least expect them. This is actually something that happens fairly frequently with Old English. Some of the phrases you say, like in marriage, to have and to hold, or man and wife, or other things like that, they actually start all the way back a thousand years ago. And it seems like the same thing has happened here. But there's a problem with this happening. 
the first thing that we looked at in the passion narrative of the, of the dream of the root was how we updated it for the culture, right? We updated the passion narrative. We told it in the terms of the culture, in terms of the Lord and his war band, right? The great Germanic hero and his followers. But, but we don't have Germanic heroes anymore in 1300. Nobody writes poems about Germanic heroes anymore in 1300. No one would understand what the heck you're talking about if you're telling the story of Christ the great hero. Because that's not what they care about in literature. What they care about is love. And specifically courtly love, right? The idea is that every gentle, gentle man must have his lady love. He does great things for her. He sacrifices himself for her. He tries to earn her favor. Think Lancelot and Guinevere, right? If he can't win her favor, he, he weeps. And he, he turns pale and he sighs. He, he, it's the lover's sickness. Now, look what the poet's done here. The most important line, the line that would jump out to you immediately if you'd read a little bit of Middle English, is down in that fifth stanza, uh, fourth line from the bottom. Jesu mi layman. Yeah? yeah? <laughs> right. Layman, it, it's, it's lover. But it's not a lover, just one who loves. It's, it's sweetheart. It's boyfriend. It's, it's what Lancelot would be to Guinevere. All of a sudden, Jesus is not the great hero. He's, he's the great lover. This is, this is a love poem to the crucifixion. If you look really closely, you see the love poem shot all the way through. Uh, you've got Jesus the sweet, right? The, the, Jesus the, the sweet one. Even the opening of the poem, if you didn't know any better, you saw, I sigh when I sing for sorrow that I see when I with weeping. This sounds like the beginning of a love poem for these people. And it, it makes the crucifixion not the great battle hero, but instead the act of the greatest lover who has ever known. And that's, that's, that's beautiful. It's absolutely, absolutely beautiful. It's, ultimately, it has exactly the same argument as the dream of the root. If you go down to the last, second to the last stanza, the stanza that goes through that, the spear has pierced through his heart and, through his, and gone through his sides. And just like Christ, the, the, the speaker of the poem, often when I sigh, I am pierced through with, uh, with care. So we're again conforming ourselves to Christ. So it's the same argument, but just all the terms have changed, right? Um, the hero Christ has given way to the lover Christ because the lover Christ is what the poet society would respond to. And this ultimately is the way that Christian poetry works, okay? It continually represents the truths of faith in a way that makes them new. And at the same time, it invites the truths of faith to sort of penetrate into society, penetrate into the culture, and authentically, authentically make it new from the ground up. It's what we saw with Cadman. It's what we saw with the Dream of the Root. It's what we see here, and it's what we need to see today. All right. I think I'm at time, so I'm going to stop, but I'll look forward to, uh, to extending this discussion a little bit later. Thank you very much. Uh, Deacon has mentioned that it was sort of thrown in the gutter, this poem. I wasn't here last week, so maybe you could tell me a little more about how it was almost completely lost, if that's the background. Yeah, okay, thank you. Three witnesses from the Middle Ages, right, from the early Middle Ages. The two crosses and then a book, all right? 
a book? A, a book, a manuscript. Okay. okay. The manuscript goes to Vercelli in Italy. Anglo-Saxon pilgrims take it, and they, they forget their luggage um, in, in Vercelli in Italy as they're on their way to Rome. Okay? Now, the poem is rediscovered. It's rediscovered in the, uh, in the early modern period when people start caring about old things again and start looking back. But it's, it's a sad thing because as English-speaking Catholics, we are really, really sundered from our heritage. And this old English Christianity, this old English Catholicism, is something that we just don't pay attention to because, well, there was a very, very concerted effort by Anglicans to co-opt it in the late 15, early 1600s and into the 17 and 1800s, and we never really pushed back. So, in a way, it's something that we've never fully reclaimed, but certainly in the past 40 years, who has time to read poetry anymore, right? Even what, what, even what was reclaimed, who reads poetry in their spare time? We get cut off from our roots, and we either wither and die on the vine, or we let other people reclaim them, and that, that's what you can't have happen. So, that's how it's nearly thrown in the gutter. The one cross is ripped apart, the other cross is knocked down, the manuscript isn't studied, and then when it is studied, it's not being studied by us, right? It's being studied by other people. So that, that's the problem. It was found in Italy. Yeah, and it's still in Italy today. In a book. In a book, in Vercelli in Italy, yeah. And that's where the poem survival is almost a minor miracle. Because what do you do if you've got a book lying around in a language you can't read, written in a handwriting you can't even decipher, that thing goes to goodwill. Or in the Middle Ages, you know, the, the things that people do to manuscripts they can't read, they rip them up. They use them, I kid you not, as cutting boards. They use them as coasters. Uh, they tear them apart to make materials for new books. It's a miracle that this thing survived for us, but we're pretty grateful that it did. Can I just add, I just want to add to that. The, the, there's a reason why we're the only ones studying Dream of the Rude during Lent. Okay, there's just, it's just over the last... 40 or so years, a sense of the old things are gone, and we, we, you know, and we want to start to reappreciate in a new way these gifts that have come down to us. Not that we're being uh, antiquarian or something like that, but these, this is a, our faith is a beautiful gift that's passed on from Christ, but given to us through real people. And someone wrote this poem. A, a Christian wrote this poem who believed like us what, 1,300 years ago, and what a gift their faith was to us. And when we disconnect ourselves from that, then we disconnect ourselves from Christ because it's through the hands and feet of other people that we receive the faith. Um, and it's just, it's just sad, and that's why I really appreciate I'll make a plug for Chris and I just appreciate the gift of the education that I received there and why it's so important for me to bring these types of things to you uh, because you deserve it. You shouldn't, shouldn't go through your life not knowing that uh, this beautiful treasure exists. So, Okay, I'm looking at your last, uh, the last poem that you presented here, 1300. Wasn't that the period of courtly love? Is that what influenced the poem, the, the love in the poem? And if so, is that beyond England? Did that also happen in France and Germany and other places? Yeah, so it absolutely happens. Courtly love, all through England, Germany, Italy, France, right? Yeah, so this... This goes absolutely, absolutely everywhere, uh, the idea of courtly love. The 
particular reason why we have this, we probably have the Franciscans to thank for it. Because the Franciscans view everything in earth and everything created by everything in nature and everything created by art as in some way a reflection of God. Every creature is a mirror, uh, says Robert Grossetest, one of the Franciscans' mentors. So what they do when they come to England is they take secular songs, a song about spring or a song about the seasons, and they use it to launch into a reflection on divine truths. They'll take songs on courtly love, and then sometimes they'll actually just directly parody them. They'll change a few lines, and they will make songs in praise of God. There's a whole manuscript of Franciscan parodies of secular songs, using secular songs as a way to get to divine truths. So, and this is not limited to England. Uh, Franciscans do the same thing in Italy. But it is, it is a thing that happens in a special way in England. Well, you got off easy. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll come. Okay. Okay, so the mindset, the, the uh, atmosphere is in 700, the Lord and his um, underlings, Lord, yeah. yeah, the love between them. And then in 1300 is courtly love. What is it in 2000? That um, we've got a special challenge in 2000. Or 2015, I guess this is. Holy cow, it's 2015. Um, the first challenge is that our culture is pretty fragmented, right? There's no one central idea. Everyone's sort of going their different way. Um, so that's the first way I'd answer the question. Then the other thing I'd say is there are really as many answers as there are Catholics who are willing to, to engage in the question, right? I study the old stuff. What drives the literature that you read, right? What drives the TV shows that you watch? What really gets your emotions going? In 700, it would have been that comitatus bond between the Lord and his men. In 1300, it's the lover and the beloved and the love that they share. And really, the question can only be answered by each individual. What is it that when you see a TV show, watch a movie, read a poem, read a book, what really speaks to you? That's where you want to start looking. It's a cop-out answer, but it's the only answer that I can honestly give. The um, Ruthwell cross, you said it was knocked down. Is it intact? Is it something we could walk around? Yeah. So it's been, thankfully, it's finally been brought indoors, so it's not going to get more rain on it. And that's, I, I wish you could see, that's what it is today. So it's been, it's actually, the top is put around on the wrong way, probably. So, so if you just flip the top around, everything would be right. But... Uh, but yeah, so it's there. They've actually done a very nice thing in the church in Scotland where it is. It's sort of recessed into the floor, so you can get it. 17 feet is pretty high up, so you can get a better view of all of it. You can go to, to Rutherland in Scotland and see it today. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.